Welcome to our podcast, We're Not So Different. I'm Samira. And I'm Ali. We're two professionals having real conversations about our experiences at home, work, and out in the community. We tell our stories through the lens of our different backgrounds to just find out that we're not so different. In our podcast, we'll explore ways that we can improve engagement and bridge social gaps while trying to find the humor in it all. Check us out on social media at WNSDifferent or email us at WNSDifferent at gmail.com. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of We're Not So Different podcast. This I'm Samira. I'm here with my co-host, Ali. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Hassan Kontar. He's a Syrian refugee with a very heart-wrenching and challenging story about how he was able to leave Syria, where he eventually landed, and what, he's, what challenges he's facing now. So Hassan, thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and tell us your story? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Hassan Al-Kontar. I'm originally from Syria, um, a part of a, a, a family of five members. Uh, we are all educated, cultured people. My late father used to be a mechanical engineer. My mother is a retired nurse. I have two other siblings. My sister is a, an English teacher, and my brother is a um, university degree of, uh, of trading. Uh, so I left Syria for the first time in 2006. I went to UAE, United Arab Emirates, Dubai. I was looking for a better future. As, uh, financial, to be a financially stable, um, pursuing my dreams, having an adventure like all the youths in general around the world, no difference. And uh, I was having, uh, my, my career was great. I was working as a marketing um, uh, executive or manager uh, in insurance, at insurance company. And it was booming. Uh, everything was great until the Syrian war starts in 2011. And uh, during that time, I had this moral and uh, moral call uh, to join the army and to kill my people, to destroy my own house, or to uh, refuse the call. And that's what I did. Uh, so I become illegal. I lost my uh, work permit in United Arab Emirates. Uh, the Syrian embassy in, in uh, Abu Dhabi refused to renew my passport. So I become illegal. Uh, in United Arab Emirates for so, almost uh, until 2017. Let me understand this. Yeah. You were asked to join the service to fight a, uh, in Syria. In Syria, it's a mandatory to uh, to serve in military for uh, one and a half year if you are university degreed or two years if you are not. Okay. Unless you are outside of Syria, you need to pay uh, a certain amount of money. Uh, which was 3,000 before the war. But once the war started, they increased the amount to 8,000 US dollars. Okay. And it wow. was not a, a matter of money only. I was feeling like I'm funding the war machine. Yeah, and it's a principle uh, so thing. It's a principle, so I refused. And uh, from that part, from that day, 2011, uh, my life changed forever. I become illegal in run homeless, jobless for years to come. And it's Dubai we are speaking about. It's a desert, 55 degree uh, during the summertime. And uh, that was my life for years. 
until they captured me, the immigration police in UAE, they jailed me two times, every time for one month. Then they deported me to Malaysia. And that's when my story started actually in Malaysia because uh, after a while I stuck at the airport in Malaysia for seven months, uh, followed by two months in detention jail there in Malaysia before I granted asylum uh, to Canada. Wow, that is, that is crazy. Um, so one, one thought I had was going back to the time where you were in um, United Arab Emirates, at the time of the, of the start of the war, can you kind of set the stage for what prompted the war and why you, <clears throat> excuse me, why you specifically felt as though you were contributing to the war machine? Can you explain to the listeners what the Syrian war was all about? Great. Uh, so what people, when you say the word Syria now, uh, people will jump into war, terrorism, uh, and uh, uh, fights blood, ISIS. Uh, uh, destroy building, ISIS, all this kind of extremists. Um, but uh, Syria is a different story. Uh, Syria is something else. Uh, no one think about Syria before 2011. Uh, it used to be uh, one of the most peaceful uh, countries around the world. Um, what people don't understand about the Middle East and Syria, we have 18 different minorities and religious groups. It's not only about one religious group. And uh, we have this diversity in Syria. We never ask each other about uh, our belief system, uh, hospitality, uh, generous people, uh, kind, calm. Damascus, the Syrian capital, is the oldest inhabited city in the world. Uh, it's a country uh, 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 10,000 years uh, old. Uh, we give so much to the human uh, civilization. And all of that just demolished, disappeared, destroyed once the Syrian war started. Uh, it's, it's about politics. It's about power and who controls the throne. Makes no mistake. It's a republic maybe, but it, it's always about the simple idea of who controls this, the throne mm. and who is refusing to give up his authorities. And that's how the Syrian war starts. We are not cowards by nature. We are fighters. But uh, uh, the Syrian situation had this uh, dilemma where uh, there is no clear enemy since 2011. Mm -hmm. Mainly you are fighting your own brothers. Yes, there is a lot of involvement from other powers and countries around the world, but we gave them the excuse to do so. So technically, you are fighting in your own land, your own brothers, in your own town. And that's what caused this moral uh, conflict in, in, my, in, uh, in me. So that's why I refused. Um, okay. As I said about my late father, we had, we, we had a small farm, olive farm, and we used to take care of it before the war. Uh, so uh, um, I thought that my purpose in life is to build and to grow things, uh, not to destroy them. It's about a love message, not a hate and anger one. I don't want to kill anyone and I don't want to be killed. That's not my purpose in life. And this is not why I exist. So that's why I refused. And I paid the, uh, 
like millions of Syrians, it's not only a unique story about me, like millions of Syrians, I paid the ultimate price to, way, to be away from my family since the last time I saw my family was in 2008. And during that time, I lost my father, I could not be there. I lost my uh, brother-in-law, I could not be there. My brother got married while I was stuck at the airport. I watched his uh, uh, wedding party uh, via Skype. And now he has a, a niece and I was always not there. This is the price I'm paying. So it's not over yet, even if I'm safe and legal permanently in Canada, I still have the, the ones I love behind. I lost, I, I lost uh, um, uh, count actually. I think it's 56 members from my own family, Al-Kuntar family from my town. Uh, uh, so far I lost 56 guys. Wow. Is that uh, to the I, war? To the war, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, at one the... time, you you will start you will stop counting, and you will stop uh, feeling uh, uh, sad uh, or having the uh, because you know it's going to happen again, and you need to say to save some energy for other news. Yeah. So yeah. they so they become numbers, and that's that's not acceptable. That people with the stories, with names, with families, to turn into numbers on Excel sheet. Uh, that's that's uh, that's the sad part about the Syria, and uh, it caused us 6.5 million refugees outside Syria. And uh, with with uh, all what's happening now, whenever you say refugee, they will think that we are a potential uh, uh, terrorist, a source of terror. And that's not true. We are the one who paid the most uh, because of right. terror. We are the result of terror, and when it comes to Syria, they are an educated, cultured, skilled workers, uh, clever people, and for sure, in any community that they uh, are living now, they can be an additional value right. to that country. Yeah, that's one thing that I'm curious about is, you know, you, you were saying that this was not a war of, obviously not a war of, of terror, but this was a war of Syrians, kind of a power struggle, if you will, within the country itself. You said there's 18 different religions, you know, that, that were uh, reflected in the society and culture itself. What, what amount or what percentage of people do you feel like participated in the war itself? Was it something that consumed the entire country? Um, were there specific groups that were more involved than other groups were? Um, do, do you know any of those details? I do, but um, it's, it's a very hard to explain with a lot of technicalities, and you need to live there to understand the, the real situations. Can I ask but, something uh, real quick? What I can say is that... Sure. Yeah, so sure. It, it's, not, it's not just an internal struggle. It's the biggest challenge is that there are other countries that are that are fighting so to his point you don't really know who your enemy is mm -hmm. because you have turkey on one side russia on one side the united mm -hmm. states on one side iran on another side and i don't know however other many countries funding and pushing in this war that's and syria is just the the battleground, the battleground yeah. for it 
right? And in the really, really sad thing is that it's this is happening across the Middle East. Yeah. But Syria is the most recent and there is a reason. There is a reason Syria is cursed by its uh, uh, geographical uh, location. Uh, uh, location. Um, it's about geopolitical. Uh, Syria is in the middle of all the world, and it's uh, uh, with all the gas and oil uh, uh, pipes. It must be uh, across Syria, and uh, for the last fifty years or since nineteen. 70 Syria has been controlled by one family the late father who controlled from 1970 until 2000 and then the current son they are from the same family from the same minority which is Alawist and uh, they are almost 12% of the uh, community 73% of the community are Muslims Sunnah I myself as a minority, we called ourselves Duru's, which is 3%. We have never uh, shared the, the, uh, the authority or never dreamed about control power because we, we know that we don't have the numbers for it. Uh, so uh, it's that difficult. Uh, having a freedom is a human purpose. Uh, you need to have a freedom of speech, uh, freedom of, uh, of doing whatever you want, uh, uh, election, uh, democracy. Uh, you need to fight the corruption. And Syria was a lovely place, yes, but controlled by a very corrupted uh, uh, families and uh, people who uh, uh, hold the authority since the last 50 years. Uh, so that must be changed and that was the first days of the revolution in 2011 that was the dream that was the purpose then the other countries get involved and it militarized it they weaponed the, the they armed all the protester and the, uh, the regime started uh, uh, shooting them so it was a chaos at the end uh, but it started with a simple dream to have the symbol needs as a human being of, of being free uh, to elect your leadership. Uh, it's yeah. a dictatorship. Does not want to lose it. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of power, and they burned it to the ground. Yeah, that's what. Happened. But uh, minorities, we get involved. We have this fear as a minority, and it's not something new. It's a historical thing. Uh, like Duru's, my minority, we live, we exist in five countries, which is Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and Palestine. And in these five countries, we live in a mountain. And that's for a reason, because during the history, we uh, have been subjected to so many attacks to terminate us. So now we live in the mountains. And whenever there's a fight, we feel an existing threat. And that's how the regime could bring so many people to his side, not the majority, but so many, because he convinced them that they are under uh, an immediate and extension threat. Yeah. And that, that's the complication about it. Got it. So, so while, the, while the war is going on, you said you went to, um, they arrested you, right? Um, how did you feel during that time knowing that you still had 
family members that were still in Syria that were, now let me ask it, it as a clarifying question, were your families participating or were, or were they, um, you know, did some of your family members go into military service or, or were some of them, you know, just, you know, essentially, essentially everyone is an innocent, but were they not participating in the war, but still were, were casualties? Uh, yeah, all Syrians are casualties, uh, indirect or uh, in uh, indirect way. So directly or indirectly, all Syrians are casualties and paid because of this war. Uh, I had my brother who uh, who was uh, serving his uh, uh, his time at the military until the Syrian war started, and he gave me a call. And he said that, uh, listen, there's no enemy here, and uh, I don't want to do this. Mm. So he refused to join again. And uh, until this very moment, he is still in run in Syria. Uh, oh. he, he's wanted to the regime. And uh, so many other Syrians uh, did the same. It's not only him. But yeah, he's still illegal in run, hiding himself in Syria because he refused. Uh, uh, to be a part of it. Uh, that was a different story because uh, at that time I used to live in UAE and um, I got the news that the war started and I have a brother who is serving in the military and he used to serve uh, like six hours away from my town and uh, there was a lot of times where uh, they will cut uh, switch off all the service, mobile service, uh, so there's no way to reach out to him. Uh, that was one of the darkest moments of my life, and it, it went for like two months. Um, and I felt relief when he said, I did not want to push him to take any decision. I want him to take the decision himself and uh, hold the responsibility. Uh, so he took the decision and I felt so much relief because uh, I'm not going to stay awake all the night, just keep trying to call him to see if he's still alive or not. Right, right. So yeah, that's the situation. Mm. Even, even at the airport, uh, um, uh, there was he, uh, one week before his marriage, my city got under a major attack from ISIS and uh, 55 people get killed and another uh, 20 or 25 captured and I was at the airport reading the news and that was one of the darkest moments in my life because I felt helpless. I did not care about anything else. I just wanted to be there with my family next to them, but I could not. And this is the kind of when you start giving up on life, uh, understand the real meaning of being helpless, powerless, hopeless. And there's nothing you can do except checking your mobile and reading the name of those who died because of the attack and uh, checking with your family if they are still alive or not. Yeah. That's the kind of life we went through as Syrians yet we are still being uh, holding responsibilities for actions we did not do, but we were a result because of it. Yeah. Yeah. So during this time, so after UAE um, detention and then they sent you, what, what was the reason why they sent you to Malaysia? 
specifically? Technically, by the law, if you got if you are illegal in a country and you need to be deported, you should be deported to your home country, and right. that's the national law. But uh, it took me a lot of fights in UAE uh, to convince them that you cannot do such thing according to the international law because it's a war zone, and then people uh, they understand they don't know. They are not educated. <laughs> they don't know such thing. So it took me a while and a lot of fights to convince them while I'm in jail uh, to, to send me to Malaysia because it's one of three or four countries around remaining around the world who accept Syrians on arriving visa. Uh, okay. So they will accept me. Uh, uh, all other countries, they need a, a visa and you need to apply through the embassy and most likely 99.9% as a Syrian, you will get rejected. So Malaysia was the only hope for us because you don't need a, a, a pre-visa. You just show yourself at the airport and you will have three months visa. It's a, a visit visa, arrival visa. And that's why I went to Malaysia in the first place. Got it. Yeah. And then once you arrived there, you were in the airport. So you just mentioned that you are automatically given a three-month visa, but somehow you ended up in the airport for seven months. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, we call it the 1951 Refugee Convention. And uh, uh, Malaysia was not a signatory of this convention. Therefore, they could not guarantee me asylum. So okay. because they are not a signatory of it, um, so I could not be technically a refugee in Malaysia. They have other local programs, but it's not recognized by the rest of the world. So it's oh, useless. Okay. Got it. And uh, as, a, as a Syrians, uh, you, cannot, uh, you cannot apply for a work visa. Or you, so I felt that after three months, I will relive what I already lived in UAE. Mm. There's no way I'm, they guarantee they will give me asylum. There's no way I can have a work visa. I don't have the money to apply for a study visa, which will cost something like 7,000. And uh, while I was looking into my very limited options, I, ex I uh, overstayed my three months. And uh, then finally I got the money to leave. The way I got the money, my mother and sister, they sold their necklace golds to send me the money. Wow. So I went to the Malaysian immigration. They, I went to the uh, Malaysian immigration. I paid the fine and I extend my visa for 15 days. And during these 15 days, I should leave the country. Otherwise, I will be illegal again and I will end up in jail. Uh, but because I overstayed, even if I paid the fine, they will give me, I will be in a blacklist for five years. Wow. So I'm already blacklist from Malaysia. I tried the first week during this 15 days to leave the country. The first week I booked a ticket to Ecuador because again, Ecuador is one of the uh, few countries who are allowing Syria on arrival visa. I booked my ticket, which cost me like 2000 uh, US dollar, almost all the money I had uh, through Turkey airline. Uh, at the day of my uh, uh, travel, the Turkey airline did not allow me to board. Wow. So I lost the 2000. Why uh, didn't they allow you to board? They did not say, but because I'm Syrian. It's, it's a well-known wow. fact. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so 
that was one of my darkest days. I went back to Malaysia. I still have one week to leave. Uh, at the very last day of the 15 days, because I did not want to be illegal again, right. I showed up at the airport. I booked a ticket to Cambodia and I traveled to Cambodia. The Cambodian authority at the airport did not allow me to enter. Mm. Mm -hmm. So they sent me back, they sent me back the same day on the same plane to Malaysia. Now, Malaysia, I'm blacklisted for five years, right? Right. right. I, can, I could not enter Malaysia. And I have no other options because I tried Malaysia, I tried Ecuador, I tried Cambodia. And as a Syrian, this is the only options I have. So I stuck at the airport. There's... There, there were no other country in the world I could go. Wow. And that's so, how I stuck. So at, at this point, how long had you been in Malaysia? Uh, uh, four and a half months. Four and a half before, months, okay. Before I left, yeah. And, and then at this point, you can't leave the airport. Where to? Because the Malaysian authorities, uh, they considered me deported from Cambodia. And I told you earlier that in inter uh, international law, if you are deported from a country, you should go back to your home country. So the Malaysian told me, you need to go back to Syria and you are not allowed to enter because you have a blacklist of five years. So I cannot go back to Syria. And I tried already to go to Ecuador. I could not. Uh, Cambodia sent me back. So I was running out of options. Okay. And that's how I stuck. So after all of that, it's been four and a half months. And so you just, at that point, you didn't have any place else to go. So you were essentially just stuck in, in the Malaysian airport yeah. and sleeping there, eating there. How did you, how did you survive in the airport uh, from a, you know, just from a, a eating and drinking standpoint? Uh, in life, we, we, what I understand now that in life, we all face some serious situations. Uh, thing, uh, situations which will seem beyond our capacity and impossible to solve. But, and this serious situation, the same serious, the same serious situation will start to generate small problems and you need to deal with them all on a daily basis. And that's what happened on, on Malaysia. My main problem, the big one was how to get myself out of the airport. But yet I spent my, uh, the most of my day dealing with the small problems, daily problems to survive. Right. Uh, uh, what to eat, how to eat, where to take a shower, when to sleep, where to sleep, what time to sleep, how to, uh, to clean and dry my clothes. It's an airport. You cannot just dry your clothes in front of the passengers. And uh, with all the security, uh, intelligence, uh, immigration, police, uh, customer service, they will come and investigate you every day, uh, three, four times. Uh, how to get a cup of coffee. Uh, the duty free was one floor above me, uh, but I was not allowed to be, uh, to enter the duty free. So to get myself a cup of coffee every day was a, a challenge. But every problem will start big. And if you give yourself the time, if you did not panic, if you observe the first shock, if you ask, start asking the right questions, you will uh, start finding the keys for your problems. 
So after a month or two, none of what I said uh, become a problem. Because when, when I start being in the middle of the media store, when the people start hearing my story, when I start inducting so many interviews, it did not matter anymore my personal story. I start feeling that I have a purpose in life. Now, after 11 years, 10 years of the Syrian war, uh, now I have the chance to tell my people's story. And I, I, ha I have a chance to make a difference. Now I have a chance to be myself again, to do something. And that gave me a purpose of life. I become proud of what I'm doing. And I was ready to pay the price by not sleeping or sleeping on a chair for seven months or even being jailed. Uh, it changed me. I become proud, a different person. I become a voice. Uh, so that's, that's how I uh, stopped thinking about the small issues because it's not my main battle. Right. And I kept, I kept telling myself, uh, um, that's, that's fine. I'm sleeping on a chair, but I never heard uh, anyone died because uh, he was sleeping on a chair before. Right. So what? Right. So what? So, uh, and uh, like taking a shower, uh, it's, it's about the daily problems. It's about knowing the daily airport routine. When the shifts start, when a, uh, planes are coming, uh, when, um, when it's less busier, when it's more busier. So knowing the routine will help you solve the problems as well. So I discovered that I need to take a shower after 1 a.m. and using the special needs toilet because it's bigger and less people will uh, uh, approach it. So from a 1, a 1 a.m. it will be uh, almost empty the airport. That's when I need to take a shower. But the problem was uh, it was a cold shower for nine months. Uh, no hot water there. So mm -hmm. for nine months I took a cold shower. For my clothes I uh, introduced myself to the cleaning staff there and with the exchange of some money, they were taking my dirty clothes to their houses, clean it and bring it back after two days. Now the cup of coffee was a challenge because <laughs> they, they are local, they have their own coffee, they, hear, they never heard about Starbucks and I, uh, they don't speak any English. So it was a struggle to make the staff cleaning, the, the cleaning staff understand something about Starbucks or black coffee. At the end, I uh, downloaded the logo, the Starbucks logo from internet. I sent it to their WhatsApp uh, with the uh, uh, type of coffee I like. And then I opened Google map and I showed them where it exists on the uh, floor above me. And then they went and started uh, looking for the logo. And, <laughs> and, and with time, after two or three days, it become a routine. Oh, okay. Same with the food, but for like nine, uh, for seven months, I get the same McDonald's meal because they were not able to understand anything else. Uh, and somehow for the McDonald's meals, they uh, thought that the straw of the, the Pepsi, uh, the straw, uh, the, the, they never heard about the straw, which is funny. So they will go back to Starbucks and they will bring me the stick, which we normally use. <laughs> So I end up with a lot of sticks, but no stories. <laughs> no story. And uh, sleeping, I, I knew that I need to sleep from 1.30 to 4 a.m. in the morning because uh, that's when the Chinese, the first uh, plane will arrive. It's, it was from China and they talk loud. So I will wake up. So that's the time I need to use to sleep. So I was sleeping from 1.30 to 4 a.m. every day. Oh, that's only three hours. Yeah. Yeah, with a small, small nap during the day. 
but uh, that's how I survived. Wow, that is that is amazing. And and just for our listeners, what year was this? Uh, 2018. 2018. Two okay. years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. So, ultimately, how did how were you able to? It, how did you end up in Canada right after all this happened, after all the, 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 the struggle and the back and forth, Ecuador, Cambodia, Malaysian airport, you know, using stir sticks instead of straws. How did you end up in Canada? Uh, Canada was not there even in my wildest dreams. Despite all the problems I had in my life, I was never in denial. I knew that I have a problem. And I knew at the time I stuck at the airport that this is a serious, serious situation and it's the most as serious as it could be. And I'm now finally, after years of running, facing my uh, 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 destiny. I was delaying it before, but now I reached to the point where I'm facing it. It was a death and uh, uh, living situation. Uh, so Canada was not there even in my wildest dream because I knew that I don't have the legal documents, I don't have what it needs to, uh, to, to ask for asylum there. Um, and I was trying all like Ecuador, uh, Cambodia. It was not a good uh, option. It was a temporary solution uh, just to avoid being illegal in Malaysia. But on the long term, it was never a solution. But I was trying to delay my destiny uh, and playing on time. But uh, at the airport, I reached the understanding that that's it. Enough is enough. No more temporary solutions. Uh, half a dream is not a dream. Half the solution is not a solution. Right. If you decide to speak, say it all or uh, don't speak at all. Uh, that's, uh, I had enough from life. And that's, I did not care anymore. Uh, so when I start making the interviews with the media, before that I tried uh, some reasonable uh, uh, solutions. I contacted UNHCR, which is the uh, United Nations Refugee Com uh, uh, Commissioner. Uh, I tried human rights, I tried uh, different NGOs, I even tried some Western and American, uh, not the American because we had a trouble ban, but some Western uh, embassies in, in Kuala Lumpur, I sent some foreign ministers in Europe, I sent uh, 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 presidents, uh, presidential offices, uh, tried everything, but no one answered. Uh, even the UNHCR said, well, sorry, we cannot help you. We, as a refugees, are their purpose of existence. Right. They are there to serve us, right? And when they said that, sorry, we cannot help you, we advise you to turn yourself to the airport authority and they will send you back to Syria. And I knew that that's the end of it. Uh, if you cannot help me, then who can? Right. Uh, th that's when I decided that's fine. If I'm going down, I'm not going down without a fight, and I'm going to tell my story. That's when I turned to the social media for the first time, and I was never active before that on social media. And uh, then the story went viral, and I started getting interviewed from all around the world. Like, it was insane. 
uh, for 20 days. I remember myself making interviews with some local radio station, uh, Spanish even stations, in, in, in the United States and in Australia and all around the world. I was on uh, articles, newspaper in the language. I did not know that it's out there. And I was, is this Valeria or Klingon? What, what is this language? So, uh, that's when the Canadian group of people uh, heard about my story and they reached out to me. Oh, okay. And uh, here's a fact, uh, despite all the media coverage I had, and that's why I love this country and I love its people. Uh, despite all the media coverage I had, which was worldwide in all language, the only lawyer who approached me and volunteered to be my lawyer without a single dollar. The only group of people who, who sent me documents to sign and start a real process to give me asylum or to offer me a help, a real help, was Canadian. Wow. No other lawyer from around the world reached out to say, what can I do to help you? No other group of people. Uh, some individuals, they think because of some personal connection they have, I know this parliament member, I know someone who knows this minister, they thought they, they could help with different countries. But this is how, not how it works. You need papers, you need documents, you need lawyer, you need right. fund, you need people to help you to fill the applications, you need to submit the application. This is how you, uh, you solve the problem. And the only people who did that were Canadian. Wow. How long did that process take after the lawyer uh, started to help you out? Uh, 40 days. The first, after 40 days, uh, I got the lawyer, 38 to 40 days. Uh, they found, actually, she is from USA, a teacher. Uh, well, that's a different story, but I had a group of teachers, uh, uh, all females from USA and Canada, uh, who teach, taught, uh, like, uh, they work in Malaysia. And uh, they, uh, they heard my story and they start approaching me and help me with all the uh, stuff, I, uh, like the stuff I need to survive on a daily basis. So every week they will appointed one or two of them to, uh, to travel to one of the Asian countries for a weekend. And in their way back, they will come and bring me uh, coffee, food, clothes, sometimes money, medicine, whatever I need. And that, they helped me a lot. Most of them, they were all of them. They were from USA and Canada. Okay. Uh, uh, the lawyer approached one of them, and uh, she brought me the paper. I, I signed it. She took it inside Malaysia, and she sent it through DHL to him. And that's how Got I. It. Yeah. So forty days. Uh, they submit the documents. It took the um, Canadian. Uh, on the system, it should be 24 months after you, as a Syrian, if you submit your application uh, for an asylum seeker, normally, the normal process, it takes 24 to 26 months. But in my case, it took almost seven to eight months because uh, uh, it was expedited, especially after I have been jailed and the Malaysian yeah authority went to the media and said, we are considering deporting him to Syria. That's when the Canadian authorities knew that, yes, now this guy is in a real problem and we need to interfere. Uh, and that's when they expedite the application and bring me here to Canada. So wow. it was 
actually the last two months during my jail time. Got it. Wow. That's, that's, that's an amazing story, an amazing, uh, amazing thing that that, that 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 the school teachers did from Canada and the U.S. as well as as well as the the lawyer to take that case uh, pro bono and do all that for you. And so after that, you moved to, you moved to Canada. Were you able to get in contact with any of your family members in Syria? Yeah, on a daily basis. On a daily okay. basis, um, they still have WhatsApp and other uh, social media. I can reach out to them uh, when. Uh, after two, almost two months in jail, uh, a, a Malaysian police officer, immigration officer, approached to me, and that was on Thursday. And he said, Monday, you are going back to Syria. And I said, uh, you don't know what you are talking about. You cannot do that. And he said, no, Monday, you are going back to Syria. And then I said, you are going to regret this. Uh, and he thought, because he said Syria, he did not say Canada. Yeah. And he was mentally and emotionally torturing me. Uh, and uh, it was Thursday, and Monday I will go back to, to, to Syria. And then I said something, and he thought that I may end up doing something bad, hurt myself in the cell, and cause them yet a bigger problem. If the world knew that I had. I end up killing myself, for example, or hurting or injuring myself in the cell. That will be even a bigger problem for Malaysia. And at the time of the Malaysian jail, I felt that I have a power. I, people are backing me up. I know people from all around the world. So I did not feel hopeless and uh, powerless uh, the same uh, I felt in UAE, for example. I knew that people are supporting me and I have the media. So they always kept a distance, the Malaysians. Uh, I felt protected by the uh, uh, people, uh, people I never met around the world, but somehow they protected me. So uh, he ended up bringing his supervisor and some high ranks officer to my cell. And they said, no, it's not going to be to Syria, it's going to be to Canada. And I said, well, you are saying this just to, uh, because I, you don't want me to cause you any problem in our way to the airport. I need to see the ticket right now. And that took us two days. Uh, Sunday, they came with the ticket. So from Thursday to Sunday, I did not even sleep, just thinking of all the options, all the things I'm going to do. But by Sunday, they brought me the ticket and they said, you are going to, Canada and they showed me the ticket. So uh, Monday morning, they escort me to the airport, eight police officers. I felt like I'm kind of president with someone, <laughs> someone with like uh, from the middle age, long hair, long beard, um, uh, weak, uh, thin. And so they were escorting me. Um, that's when I called my mother. Uh, when uh, I was on the, the gate, I had an access to my phone. And after two months of not being in contact with them, with oh, my wow. phone, yeah, I did not hear anything about them in two months. So that was the first time I called my mother. I told her, don't cry because you will make me cry. And I don't want to look weak in front of the officers. <laughs> <laughs> she cried anyway. But she, she smiled 
and uh, uh, she started laughing. And that's for the first time in nine years, uh, my mother was smiling. Uh, that was priceless for me. Yeah. Uh, and I called my, my brother, my sister, and I told them I'm in my way to Canada. But the Canadian people, they were in touch with my family during my, my, my jail time, even the lawyer and everything. So okay. I, I knew they, they were not alone, my family. Uh, uh, so the Canadian reached out to them all the time as well, updating them of what's going on. Until Monday when I reached to the plane. And yeah, that was it. Wow. I can't even imagine what you and your family have gone through just to get you to Canada into a safe space. But now that you're in Canada, what, um, what is life like for you now? And nothing to complain about, actually. It, life is, is uh, about priorities for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, some priorities, they never change. All what I was asking for during my uh, homeless, jobless, illegal time years uh, to have a place where I will be permanently safe and legal, no, never to look uh, above my shoulder again because I'm afraid some police officer will hunt me down. Yeah. Uh, a place where I can have work and support myself and support my family. A place where I can, as a human, have a value, have a voice, rights and obligations. Uh, and Canada guaranteed me, gave me all of that, uh, like, a one package deal. That's my main priority in life. So whenever I'm facing some difficult situation here in Canada about, I'm still like, for example, working in a a minimum wages job. And uh, I got some difficulties, but I always remind myself that that was my priority. Yeah. I have it now. It's not the time to start being, greedy again it's okay to dream big uh, to keep chasing your dreams to be financially stable to have a better job but at the end of the day you got what you wanted your main battle in life i want that and that i want it and that's for me is the purpose so whenever i'm facing uh, small small battles it doesn't matter for me even if i lost because I won the main one. What's the worst it will happen now? It's difficult for you or for the Americans people or those who are listening to understand what I'm speaking about yeah. because they, yeah. never, they never lost the sense of being illegal. They, they had the small things in life. Uh, they were never in such a situation. But to be illegal and hunted all the time, on edge of your life, playing with death all the time. And all of a sudden you are in Whistler. Uh, It's a mountain area, uh, a resort town, skiing, snow. (laughs) That's a kind of surreal situation. That's a a fairy tale story. It happens one for 20, 30 million. It, It never happened to anyone else. Yeah. In my situation, and that's that's how I keep reminding myself. So, uh, Americans or other people who never uh, step out of their comfort zone, who never faced a death or left situation, uh, they don't understand what it means not to be able to 
turn to switch on or off the light in your room. Yeah. Not to have, yeah. not to have a cold, uh, a hot shower, not to eat what you want, not to have a cup of coffee whenever you want, not to be able to open the door and be outside whenever you want, and yet you are not in jail. Yeah, I, I that's one reason why I really uh, I'm so grateful that you agreed to be on our podcast because I think it's important for um, people to understand the impact that these wars and policies have on real people. And by hearing your story, we can maybe even for a second, at least empathize with you and say, I, and think, you know, what would it be like if I had to live in an airport or I had to go to jail and not be able to go back home, not be able to go see my family and be with them and, and not because I'm, you know, choosing to be somewhere else to, for this job or for this marriage or whatever is moved me away, but because I just can't because of war, because of devastation, things that are completely out of our control. It's just a, it's a different context. And you're absolutely right. Those of us who were born and raised in, in countries like the US or Canada or even Europe, that we have this comfort and this privilege of knowing that we're safe um, and taken care of. And I know that there are people here that would can really relate to you, but I, for myself, I, I understand that I'm, I'm definitely privileged enough to have never experienced that, but I need to hear these stories so that well, we can help and make things better. People now, they call it a social distance. Yeah. And that's all the pandemic stuff. But we as Syrian, we practice a social distance long before the pandemic. Yeah. A real yeah. one. That's a, I cannot uh, go back to my country. I cannot yeah. meet my family. And uh, um, But here's the thing. Uh, when I was in jail in, in Malaysia, and I, it was a small room, uh, five, five by six meters, uh, less than that, with sometimes more than 40 to 45 people mm -hmm. uh, inside. There's no place to stand. There's no place to sleep. Uh, for the first 20 days, I was sleeping while just uh, uh, sitting and lying my back to the wall um, because you need to earn your spot to sleep. Uh, if you are new, you cannot just have a place to sleep. So I was not sleeping even there. But I start meeting these people, people from uh, Asia, like Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, uh, very poor people who did nothing wrong. They sold everything they have in their countries and paid for their visa to come to Malaysia because they want a better future for their families. And yet they found themselves going back, deported to Bangladesh or whatever they are from the, uh, uh, with, with nothing. And that's, uh, that's how difficult life for them just because they born in the uh, wrong side of, uh, of the world. And mm -hmm. that's when I, wait a second, I told myself, you are ending up in Canada. Don't start uh, complaining. You are ending up in Canada. You have hope. You have a light at the end of the tunnel. These yeah. poor people, they did nothing wrong. And they are 
going back to their countries empty-handed, treated like a criminal for two to three months in jail with no uh, court or execution or whatever you call it. And they did nothing wrong except boring, uh, they born in the, side, uh, in the wrong side of the world. And, and uh, that's what uh, Americans or Westerns should understand that. And they use it as privilege. It, it is a, yeah. it is definitely a privilege. And I know for myself, my parents are Iranian immigrants. Um, their immigration story was not a challenging one. They came for school and I didn't actually go visit my family in Iran until I was 25 years old. And mm. it wasn't until then that I really, really got to understand my dad because my dad is very close to his family and seeing how close he was to them and only seeing them once every five or six years, mm. um, especially during the war, he didn't go back during the war at all. It, it gave me just a small taste of how difficult it must be for him to be so far away. And that's not I mean, there was a war in Iran, but he wasn't, he didn't experience that. So I can't even imagine how much that adds to the challenges and the suffering and the difficulties that uh, families like yours and yours and you and Syrians and all of the other countries that are impacted are, are dealing with. So really super grateful to have, to have you here, to share your story, to let people know how can people get involved to help refugees or even asylum seekers and how can people like myself you know get help you transition or even you know i don't know even abroad what can we do to help support better uh, it's not a matter of uh, it, it's a matter of uh, where you uh, where are you from and where like in usa uh, they did a huge part now after the election yeah. That's a good start because <laughs> uh, for the last four years we had a travel ban as Syrians, yeah. and uh, even the uh, refugee uh, uh, process has been stopped completely. So now hopefully it will start uh, kicking off again. Uh, but it doesn't matter uh, for a, just be a human with a humanitarian uh, heart, uh, feel other struggles, um, uh, even like with what went uh, in USA a few months ago with the Black Lives Matter. Uh, it's only one human struggle and we should feel connecting to each other because I could understand what it means to be discriminated, uh, segregated and uh, feeling racism all the time because I, for the last 10, 11 years, I was facing the same. So I, can, I, I could rely on that uh, uh, struggle and, uh, uh, for their rights and freedom. Um, I, and I got involved in that too even here with the indigenous right, for example. So it's not a matter of refugees only. If you are in Canada, what you can do, Canada is the only country in the world where you can uh, privately sponsor a, a refugee, five Canadian or permanent residents in Canadian can come together and sponsor a refugee. Uh, and that's a unique program. No other country in the world has this program. So um, if you are living, if you are Canadian, get involved in one of these groups. Uh, if you are not a Canadian, if you are American or Europe, uh, reach out to some refugees. Uh, don't hear about them from the news. Don't just check 
the footage, the news and, uh, and the media outlets are showing us, reach out to some of them, ask them, be in a personal uh, um, relation with them, even if it's like uh, uh, a long distance or using a Facebook or whatever. Know these people uh, personally, and it will change your idea about uh, immigrants, new immigrants policy, open door policy, refugee crisis, if you are a, an activist, you can uh, travel. Now you cannot because of the corona pandemic, but before you could travel to any of the refugee camps in, in Greece or Lebanon or Jordan or Turkey to help. Or even now you can uh, help with the fundraising, all this donation goes for refugees and refugee camps. That's how you could help. But mainly you should speak, uh, you should change your mentality and the people you know is about refugees themselves. No, I appreciate that so much. And if people want to learn more about you and your story, or maybe want to invite you to speak to their groups or communities, how can they contact you? Uh, uh, well, I have this new, I just started a new Facebook uh, page. It's a public page and I start some videos explaining about the, my story and some important uh, uh, issues for me. It's a videos. Uh, so they can watch the videos on my, uh, on my uh, I will send it to you through chat. Or they can uh, reach out via Twitter or Instagram or, uh, or email. Uh, this is my new Facebook page. And uh, they can have a better idea about my story uh, through the videos I'm making now. So, so that's H-A-S-S-A-N-A-L-K-O-N-T-A-R. Um, you can look him up at, on social media and follow him. If you go to his Facebook page, it has all of the links to his other handles as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. We, uh, I mean, you've really helped give me personally some more additional perspective about uh, what my priorities in life should be and the gratitude I should have for what I do have. And I think that in the end, that's a lesson that we can all take from this conversation. Um, thank you so much, Hassan. Uh, for having me. I wish you the best in everything that you do. Thank you for listening to another episode of We're Not So Different podcast. Be sure to subscribe, share, and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on social media by looking up the handle at WNS Different or We're Not So Different on Twitter. Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. You can also join us live on Instagram or check out our previous live episodes on IGTV by following us at WNS Different. If you have comments, questions, or thoughts, feel free to email us at WNSDifferent at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.